that was shed for us. And so we leave our homes behind, we leave uh, our cars behind, we leave our busy schedules behind, and we gather here in this place to enthrone you as King and God. We invite your presence and your spirit here to teach us from your word. Lord, thank you. And may we open our hearts and minds to what you're going to do in this place this morning. In your name, amen. You guys can grab a seat. Good morning. Uh, welcome to Awaken. My name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, you're joining us uh, for a teaching series from the book of Habakkuk in the Bible. Uh, last week we looked uh, at the major theme of the book, which was how long, O Lord. And we sketched an introduction to the series. Habakkuk was a prophet and a temple musician. And the book is actually named after him, and his name means to embrace. Uh, spanning only ch three chapters and 56 verses, the words of the prophet are few but eloquent, teaching us how to dialogue with God, how to grieve, and even how to worship. The authors of the New Testament quoted Habakkuk several times to actually ground the unfolding plan of God's salvation to his newly reconstituted people. People who believed in Jesus Christ and gathered in small communities called churches. Well, two millennia have passed and we're doing the same thing, gathering in small communities called churches, studying the words of Habakkuk. I'd like to invite you to read with me Habakkuk 1. We will orient ourselves to the text this morning. Uh, you can pull it up on your uh, Bible. You can pull it up on your phone. But I'll be just be reading it, and uh, we'll also be playing some accompanying music this morning as well. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective. Injustice never emerges, for the wicked restrict the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. Look at the nations and observe, God says. Be utterly astounded, for something is taking place in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. Look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, the bitter impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories not its own. They are fierce and terrifying. Their views of justice and sovereignty stem from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and more fierce than wolves of the night. Their horsemen charge ahead. Their horsemen come from distant lands. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. All of them come to do violence 
Their faces are set in determination. They gather prisoners like the sand. They mock kings and rulers are a joke to them. They laugh at every fortress and build siege ramps to capture it. Then they sweep by like the wind and pass through. They are guilty. Their strength is their God. Habakkuk's second prayer. Are you not from eternity, Yahweh my God, my Holy One? You will not die. Lord, you appointed them to execute judgment. My rock, you destined them to punish us. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? You've made mankind like the fish of the sea, like marine creatures that have no ruler. The Chaldeans pull them all up with a hook, catch them in their dragnet, and gather them in their fishing net. That is why they are glad and rejoice. That is why they sacrifice to their dragnet and burn incense to their fishing net. For by these things, their portion is rich and their food plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slaughter nations without mercy? Amen. The word of the Lord for the people of the Lord. Praise be to the Lord. So thank you, Daniel, so much. Appreciate the music. So, amen. And it's just beautiful to read God's word. Uh, Beautiful to read it in chunks. Thank you, guys. This is the text that we're preaching on this morning. And in the first four verses, we hear Habakkuk's primal cry for justice. Something is wrong. Habakkuk cries out to God and he uses two key Hebrew words that roughly translate, two verbs that roughly translate, how long must I look and how long must I watch? Habakkuk is looking and watching and all he sees is injustice and oppression All he sees are things that should not be the case. He sees the world going off on the rails. I think sometimes we see the same thing. We look around and and we see things that are unfair, things that aren't right, things that we don't have answers to, but in our heart, we are saying, God, how can you let this happen? How long are you going to permit this to go on? God, what are you going to do about it? It's not fair. And so last week, we talked about what that specific context was for Habakkuk. We talked about how the righteous king at the time, Josiah, was actually killed in battle against Pharaoh's armies, against Egypt. And an unrighteous king replaced him. And Habakkuk is writing in 605 BC, and one of his contemporaries, the prophet Jeremiah, actually writes about all the things that this evil king, King Jehoiakim, did. He assassinated priests and his political opponents. He robbed from the poor. He accepted bribes. He killed whoever opposed him 
and he worshiped idols. He believed that money was the solution to all of his problems and anybody who got in his way would be terminated. And so the poor were oppressed. And with great boldness, Habakkuk presents this charge before God. How long will you help? God, we're your people and we're being exploited. We're being oppressed. Why do you not listen to us? When will you save us? Don't you see what is going on here, God? This isn't right. I want, I want to be careful to, um, to distinguish something. Habakkuk enters into God in a very healthy dialogue. You see, he's not blaming God for all these things. Sometimes we can blame God for things. Habakkuk isn't blaming God for these things. Rather, he's saying, when will things get better? When will you step in and save God? I know that you are powerful enough to stop this. When will you do so? And this is his bold charge before God. When are you gonna step in? In verse five, we see God's answer. God says, look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded for something is taking place in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. God responds, but the funny thing is, he doesn't really answer Habakkuk's question. Um, he kind of deflects it. That's irritating. I don't like it when people do that to me. But God seems to think it's a perfectly acceptable response. And so he says, look to the nations. And God does something very interesting. We know that God is listening because God uses, in, in the, his response back to Habakkuk, he uses the same two Hebrew verbs, look and watch, look and watch. And so he says, look and watch what I'm about to do. And God says, look not at the unraveling picture of justice in your own society. Because that's all Habakkuk's vision was filled with. But he said, rather look to what I'm about to do in the nations. In verse six, God says, watch, for he is raising up the nation of Babylon. Some of your um, Bible translations have Chaldea or Chaldeans. They're the same nation, just two different words for them. He is raising them up to be an instrument of justice. I think this is fascinating for a couple reasons. Um, one, there's a small picture that Habakkuk sees, right? It's a domestic social justice issue. There's an evil king, an evil leader. But God wants to move Habakkuk's vision from a small picture to a big picture. And God sees that not only does this evil king need judgment, but the nations around Judah need judgment. Assyria, who conquered his people and the kingdom of Israel, need judgment. Egypt needs judgment. So God says, I'm going to raise up another nation that is going to judge all y'all because you're deserving of judgment. You're not worshiping the one true God. You're exploiting God's people. But in that pronouncement of judgment, he also gives mercy. And we're gonna see what that looks like as we follow through this text of Habakkuk. But he's gonna give judgment and mercy. This is who God is. He provides judgment on one hand and mercy on the other. This is his character. The second reason 
And this is what's so fascinating, fascinating is Judah was meant to be a light to the nation. God's, God's people were meant to be a light where idol worshiping stopped. And when you entered into places where God's people was, there was one true God. They were compassionate to the poor and needy. They were in a community that took care of one another. The only problem is that wasn't happening in Judah. That wasn't happening under the reign of the evil king or the, many of the evil kings before that. So Judah was meant to be a light to the nations where people could know the one true God. This is why he established them as a kingdom. This is why he called for a people after himself so that others could know they could be a witness. But instead, Judah worshiped the idols of the surrounding nations. And so God's plan would actually be for a nation to completely conquer them. And they'd be picked up from their land, picked up from their comfort, picked up from their own failures and idolatry and brought to where they would be rubbing shoulders with all the nations and all the peoples. God's plan leads them to exile, but he's going to teach them what faithful worship looks like in the midst of everyone. And then third, it's fascinating because the Chaldeans and the Babylonians, they would not be a permanent agent of justice. God would just use them briefly. In fact, they would actually kick off a sequence of events in Scripture foretold by God through his prophets that would usher in God's ultimate agent of justice, Jesus Christ. A true king with an everlasting kingdom. And Babylon would be the first nation. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, and then the true king would arrive. Habakkuk is kicking off. He's starting God's unfolding plan of redemption that has the nations in mind, but has Jesus Christ at the center. And this is where we see it beginning to happen. So I think this is, um, you know, kind of cool, a little historical we talked about. But how do we connect this to our world? How do we bridge maybe what God was doing in Habakkuk to what God could possibly be doing today? This happened 2,500 years ago, 2,600 years ago. Well, let's, let's just look at one thing. There are numerous things going on in the world today. We could talk about a lot of them, but let's look at one. Immigration. Uh, arguably, this is uh, a domestic issue, one with multiple political viewpoints. We're not here to talk about those today. But one where injustice is rampant, where sex trafficking, drugs, inadequate facilities oppresses people. We see the small issue on our southern border, but what if God sees a larger international issue? You guys can look at the map behind me. This is put out by the UN. 60 million people last year were displaced and we're refugees. We see the small, tiny, little three arrows, but look at the other arrows. 60 million people streaming to find safety and refuge and hope and some small measure of comfort. We see 
a small issue, God sees a larger issue. And guess what? In Acts 17, God says that it's not dictators. It's, it's not terrorist movements that cause people to move from place to place. In Acts 17, it's God's sovereign hands who controls the movement of people across our globe. And so we have to ask ourselves, what is God doing? Well, what was he doing in Habakkuk? Even though there was judgment, there was mercy for the nations would be coming into contact with the people of God. And so God is doing the same thing right now. His purpose is that the nations would find a caring and compassionate church following in the way of Jesus Christ, sharing the gospel, making new disciples, and making new churches. Showed a couple of pictures up there um, as well if you want to go to the next slide. Um, these are some of the refugee camps in Europe. Um, some have better housing. You kind of see just shipping containers stacked on one another to try to find adequate housing and facilities. Some are just tent cities. Cologne, Germany is one such city that, that is ringed by refugee camps like this where people are just packed into facilities because they've fled. And what are God's people doing about it? Well, I'd love to share another picture with you up here. Um, this is a picture of a, um, one of my really good friends, Mateo. Some of you guys might know Mateo and his wife, Katie. They're actually missionaries and church planters with our movement of churches. Um, they went to Cologne uh, along with a team of people last year. They actually had um, uh, their first child, Malachi, over there to plant a church because they want to reach the nations. And the nations are coming to us. The nations are coming and they're hungry for the gospel. And so they're church planners. Our church actually partnered with them financially last year to be able to send them to the nations, to send them to go and plant a new church. The guy behind them is actually someone they share the gospel with. He doesn't believe, but he was their ride to the hospital and back so they could have Malachi because they, they don't have a car there. So there's a trust and a dependence. The nations are streaming to us. It's a beautiful picture. God answer, redirects Habakkuk from a small issue to a bigger issue because God is a global God. God is a global God. So this is Habakkuk's charge. Um, God starts to answer them. And uh, then he's gonna talk about, God's gonna talk about this nation of Babylon in several verses, um, in verses uh, 7 through 11. Uh, he's going to describe them in the following ways. They're fierce, they're swift, they're terrifying. Again, Babylon as a military power um, was fearless and you did not want to fight them. They relied heavily on mounted cavalry and King Nebuchadnezzar, he won several battles in a row, but one of the most brutal ones was the one where he defeated Pharaoh's army at Carchemish. And then he force marched his entire army 150 miles to slaughter the remaining army and towns around Egypt that had sent that army to prove that Babylon would crush you. It was terrifying to fight them. God says that justice and sovereignty that stemmed from themselves. In other words, they were a law to themselves. This is kind of the might makes right principle. We see that all the time. It's survival 
of the fittest. It's Darwinian theory, and God says this is what they practice. Might rakes right. And last, though, even though they're a, uh, an agent of justice, God says they're guilty. In verse 11, they're guilty because their strength is their God. Though God will use their swift army and terrible power to deliver his judgment, they are nonetheless guilty because they do not worship him. And so Habakkuk's question of how long, Lord, is not really answered. It's deflected. And God says, hey, things are going to get worse. That's never the answer that we want. When we're going through something, when things are hard, we want God just to step in and make it go away. The answer that we don't want is things are going to get worse. And so Habakkuk in verse 12 he counters God. Again, God's response simply hangs there, and Habakkuk is incredulous. So God, you're telling me that a people more wicked than us are going to rise up and destroy our city and kingdom? How is that fair? And again, I think all of us have been in that place where we look at God and say, God, this is not fair. How is this fair? How is this part of your plan? It doesn't make sense. We can begin to list the reasons. Losing loved ones, losing parents, losing a job, financial setbacks, they can go on and on and on. How is this fair? Habakkuk begins his response to God and he quotes what he knows about God to God. <laughs> if you're going to talk to God, sometimes it's great to use his own ammunition, right? <laughs> so God, this isn't fair, so I'm going to pick up my Bible and tell you all the ways that it's not fair from your own word. And this is what Habakkuk is doing. But he's doing that because, see, he is looking back as a temple musician, as a prophet. He is looking back at how God has saved his people throughout history and said, God, you saved them then. Will you not save us now? This is what he's trying to do. God, remember your character. And he uses six names of God to recall all the mighty times God has saved his people in verse 12. He uses Lord, the everlasting one, my God, my holy one, Yahweh, my rock. These are the names of God given to God by David, by Moses, by Samuel, by these giants of the faith. And God rescued his people. And Habakkuk is doing the same thing. Remember your name, God. Remember your name. Remember who you are and save us. Again, I think this is the, the deeper question of why is this happening? In verse 13, Habakkuk says, hey, you can't look at evil. You cannot look at treachery. So his question is becoming more intense. No longer is it how long until you save. Now it's like, well, God, I know from your character that you cannot do this long term. Habakkuk does not like the world as he sees it, nor as God describes it. I think many Christians have been there. I've been there. We don't like the world as we see it, and we don't like the world as God describes it. 
And in verse 14, he tells God, you've made humanity like the fish of the sea without a ruler. What Habakkuk is doing, he's saying something is wrong with creation. Humanity is without a ruler. Habakkuk is going back to the garden and saying we're helpless because we've chosen not to be ruled by you. We've chosen sin and we're helpless. Something is wrong and God, you should step in and you should save us, but you're gonna send another nation that doesn't even know you or worship you to subjugate us and oppress us? God should step in and save, but instead the wicked seem to rule and prosper and bad things continue to happen. To finish the second dialogue with God, Habakkuk closes out his point with an analogy. So he starts with just kind of quoting God's character back to God, God's name back to God. He reaches back and says, hey, something is wrong. Creation has gone wrong. Step in and save. We're helpless. And then he closes this, this great dialogue, this great prayer with the analogy of a dragnet. Um, you can see an image of a dragnet um, if you go to the next slide, great. Uh, I'm not a great fisherman, but I know someone who is. So I'm gonna invite Vashi on up. Hey, hey. So Vashi's got a, a great prop here. I told him he couldn't throw it out over the audience. Um, but we're gonna take a look at what a dragnet is. We're gonna, we're gonna look at what a dragnet is real quick. Um, Bosch has been probably waiting to do this. This is one of his dream, his secret dreams. <laughs> so go, go fishing at church. Can't wait. But this is an image of a dragnet. So while you get that ready, but see the image there. A dragnet was employed um, by even sometimes entire villages to drag fish, food, sustenance from the oceans, from, ridge, from, from rivers. Nothing escaped. Because at the bottom of a dragnet was weights. And so everything caught in the nets was helplessly swept up and caught. And so, Vash, whenever you're ready, um, you can just throw it out there. People, people can kind of see. Um, all right, all right. So uh, he might do it again. He might do it again. You can't give him just one go. I think you got a little wider spread there, Vosh. Um, go for it one more time. But oh, okay, that's all right. That's all right. Um, I, I do. Uh, Vashi, has a fish ever escaped your clutches, though? Oh man, just, just this week. The first one got away. Um, so great Good job, Vash. Um, the picture is this arching net that captures everything because it weighs everything down and then it's scooped up. Um, quick plug for Vashi, if you ever want to go fishing, learn how to fish, um, do some cast net stuff, uh, go talk to him after, after service. Um, I've been fishing with him once or twice and uh, I almost put a hook in his leg so I don't go fishing. <laughs> or was it Gary's leg? I, I don't remember. It was Gary or Vosh's leg, so 
I don't, I don't go fishing. Uh, you don't want me to fish. My kids keep wanting me to fish. I'm like, I will take out your eye. Like, but Habakkuk uses this analogy of a dragnet, and I think it's important that we know why. You've seen kind of the fearsome nature of it. Habakkuk lists nine qualities about it. And this Babylon is this dragnet. It's going to pull up the righteous. It's going to catch the righteous in this net. It's going to gather them all up. Babylon is going to rejoice at the plight of their victims. And they did. Babylon would be glad in their own might and strength. They would sacrifice and worship to the dragnet, which was their own gods. They would burn incense to it. This is the reason why we're winning. It's because we're so good and powerful. Babylon would live in luxury because they didn't have to plant or harvest anything. They just gathered it up. And Babylon would enjoy plentiful food. The other nations would be in famine, but Babylon would be in excess. And Habakkuk is angry. There's raw emotion, but we have to understand the reason. The reason is simple. All nine things that Habakkuk has listed about this dragnet, you see they were supposed to be true about God's people who lived in the promised land. But now God is making it true for another people. They were supposed to be true for God's people who kept covenant with him. Here's how. See, God would bless them by pulling up the wicked. He would catch the evildoers and gather them up for destruction and judgment so that the righteous could rejoice and be glad and inherit the land. That the righteous could worship God with continual sacrifices and burning incense. And as a result, God's people would inherit the land. They would live in luxury and they would eat plentiful food. They would have plentiful harvest. This was supposed to be the picture of God's people, but now it's going to be the picture of the wicked. For Habakkuk, something has gone terribly wrong, but by the end of chapter 1, he accepts what God is doing. We see that in verse 12 because he uses the six names of God, but he also says, you have appointed them to execute justice. Habakkuk gets this. He's still not blaming God, but he's still searching for an answer. He is not satisfied. He wants God to speak to him again. And so he closes out, um, and we'll just read um, as kind of a preview of coming attractions. Habakkuk 2, verse 1, he says, I will stand at my guard post and station myself on the lookout tower. I will watch to see what he will say to me and what he should reply about my complaint. Habakkuk chooses to commit himself to hopeful waiting and watching and eventually worship. So there's a few takeaways that we can process through as a community as a church from Habakkuk. My prayer and hope is that Habakkuk 1, you guys have, have caught a, a picture, the meaning of the text. But what are some takeaways? Well, first is this, God's interest for his people is not political power or prosperity. We have both in America and we are blessed, but that's not God's interest for us. 
Instead, he wants obedience to his word, worship. He wants togetherness. He wants maturity and missions so that we are light to the nations. The evil King Jehoiakim was so evil because he turned all of his wealth to accomplish whatever he wanted instead of worshiping God with his wealth, the very one who provided the land for his people. God provides us with our land and our wealth. Second, Habakkuk teaches us how to faithfully question God, I think, through the form of grieving and to lament. Habakkuk teaches us how to do that. It's okay to have anger and questions and uncertainty with God. This whole of Habakkuk 1 is a dialogue between God and Habakkuk about what's going on. It's a conversation around grief. It's raw and it's honest. Why? Because Habakkuk is grieving his community, his city, even his own life will be taken from him in God's judgment. In the face of death and dying, Habakkuk has grief. But God's going to lead him to a place of hope. And God is good even in the midst of death and dying for one reason. We cannot outgrieve God. It is not possible. I'll explain why in a minute. The third thing, again, Habakkuk is grieving about the death of his community, uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was a renowned psychiatrist. In 1969, she published a work called On Death and Dying. Um, it's been part of the, the main handbook um, for counseling. Um, and she goes through the five stages of grief. Um, she did phenomenal work, but we actually see Habakkuk deal with all of them. So let's briefly look at them. We see denial. Habakkuk is in denial that God will save. Chapter 1, verse 2, how long, God? I don't think you're going to do this. Habakkuk is angry. He says, God, your law is ineffective. You call this justice? Habakkuk bargains with God in verse 12. You will not die. We will not die. You won't stamp us out. You won't stamp your name out. The image of the dragnet, it was cool to kind of watch that. But Habakkuk is depressed because Israel is an agricultural society. He knows exactly what a dragnet is, and he knows that no one, nothing is going to escape. And he's depressed. The righteous are pulled up. We're just like helpless fish, God. And then last, acceptance. Again, chapter 2, verse 1 that we just read. There's hopeful waiting in worship. So Habakkuk teaches us how to grieve, and in his grief, God points him to hope, which is a bigger historical picture that he cannot see yet, but God is asking him to have faith in it. We are blessed because we see the full historical picture, do we not? Habakkuk was seeing something small. God wanted him to see something bigger. God was playing the long game, and this is how we know that. You see, Habakkuk 1, verse 5, is actually quoted in Acts 13. It's Paul's second sermon, and he goes back to Habakkuk. 
says, let me break it down what's happening here for you guys. Verse 40 says, so beware what is said in the prophets does not happen to you. It's Habakkuk. Look, you scoffers, marvel and vanish away because I'm doing a work in your days, a work that you'll never believe, even if someone to explain it to you. As they were leaving, they begged that these matters be presented to them the following Sabbath. After the synagogue had been dismissed, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas who were speaking with them and persuading them to continue in the grace of God. Paul uses Habakkuk to say, marvel, look, and believe because the nations are gonna be once again part of God's people called the church. It won't just be Jews, it'll be the nations as well. 600 years have passed and Paul is saying Habakkuk's prophecy has come to fruition. Look, marvel, the nations are now part of Israel. The nations are now part of the church. And so, these people though, Paul's warning was tough because they laughed and would fail to repent just like Judah did. Again, Paul reached back to Habakkuk 1 and 5 to explain that the Jews, to the Jews of Antioch that God was doing something amazing. The light of the world, Jesus Christ came as the son of David and the son of man to save his people, to save his nations. He did not come as a powerful king. He came as one of the fish in the seas. And you know what? Jesus Christ was also caught up in the dragnet of the wicked. We talked about Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Jesus was executed at the order of a Roman ruler, Pontius Pilate. He was rejected by his own people. He suffered in the dragnet, betrayed, unjustly accused, and executed on a wooden pole, naked in front of some soldiers and the people that he loved. Executed on a, in, in a city, right outside of the city, where he healed, loved, fed, and taught God's people about the kingdom and the way back to God. You see, we cannot outgrieve God. The reason why is we're the ones who put his son on the cross. We were the scoffers. We were the mockers. And we killed Christ because of our sin. But this is what Paul says in the sermon. He said, but the one whom God raised up did not decay. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is being proclaimed to you and everyone who believes in him is justified from everything which you cannot be justified through from the law of Moses. In Jesus Christ alone is forgiveness of sins. is a, a, a true escape from the dragnet. Amen. Two final thoughts. First, Babylon was not God's ultimate agent of justice in Habakkuk. Jesus Christ is, and his dragnet is now a swift, precious, beautiful gospel carried on people who Jesus called fishers of men. They know their God, they're ruled by God, and the right order of creation has been restored. And second thought, 
You know, perhaps you're here and you need prayer because there's something in your life that you are grieving about and you have that same question, how long, O oh Lord? I just wanna encourage you after service, uh, there will be a few of us here. If you need prayer for something, maybe you're grieving, maybe you're questioning God, we'd love to pray for you. Also, we'll be here if, if you wanna have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you want forgiveness from your sins, we'd love to pray with you. There'll be a number of us down here to pray. But I'm gonna close in prayer. And uh, we'll have some announcements. Father, we thank you, Lord, for Jesus Christ who suffered, but yet who was resurrected. We thank you for Jesus Christ who rose again, who's forgiven us of our sins, and who is the rightful king. And all of our teaching, and all of our preaching, and all of our living and all of our wealth and all that we do, may he be our king. In your name we pray, amen.